pray one more time before we look at the word. Father, we do pray for the spirit of revelation and understanding in your word. We pray, Lord, you would give us insight into prophetic words that were given even 2,500 years ago from prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel. And we understand in light of those prophecies how we should be living now. In Jesus' name, amen. So there were these two guys. They were actually pastors, and they were standing by the side of the road, and they were holding up a sign. The sign said, the end is near. Turn around before it's too late. And this one car was driving by, and the guy yelled out the window, you guys are nuts. And he sped by, and then they heard screeching tires around the corner, and splash. One pastor said to the other, Maybe you should change the sign to a bridge is out ahead. Right. <laughs> well, actually, according to many, many biblical prophecies, the end is near, and Jesus is coming back soon. Now, we've been doing this series called God's Grand Story, which really is simply the story of the Bible, and we summarize the Old Testament in six parts. If you remember those six parts are simply, number one, beginnings, then wilderness wanderings, then promised land. Fourth part is a united kingdom of Israel, then the fifth part is a divided kingdom. The sixth part, and the part that we're on right now, is we're calling captivity and the coming kingdom. The sixth part actually is the part where Judah is taken captive by Babylon back in, you know, the, the, the city of Babylon. And, and then the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian Empire allows the Jews to return to their homeland. Many stay scattered, but many return. But during that time period, it's an important time period because a lot of your Bible is about that time period. Two of the prophets during that time period were Ezekiel and Daniel. Now, Ezekiel prophesied to the early exiles, and we have the book of Ezekiel in our Bible. Daniel prophesied, actually, in, while he was in the court of Babylon and in the court of Persia, and we have the book of Daniel in our Bible. But both of them saw dramatic visions from God. And in these visions, God spoke about explaining these tumultuous times that they people found themselves in, but also those prophets would see into the near future what God was going to do, but then they would see past that time into the, through the corridors of time to the last days, and they would speak about what was going to happen in the last days. Now, these prophets, of course, are speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They've been given these God dreams, and they're being told how the end is going to come to pass. So we have these incredible, specific prophecies about the last days, from prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and others. So what I'd like to do is take some time while we're in this portion of the Bible in which these prophets lived and received these revelations from God, I'd like us to take some time to look into those revelations because we're going to see some things that are being told 2,500 years ago were going to happen that we are seeing on nightly news. 
So I'm going to start today by talking about one of those prophecies. And I'm going to start with the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Again, more than 2,500 years ago, God gave the prophet Daniel a vision of the future. That is the most comprehensive prophetic insight ever given to man in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule over Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that greatly troubles him. So he calls in his counselors, his magi, his wise men, and he asks them, he says, tell me my dream and the interpretation of my dream. Well, they couldn't do that. And this really ticked off Nebuchadnezzar, so he ordered the execution of all of the magi in his kingdom, in his court. Well, young Daniel, remember, young Daniel, first, book of, first part of the book of Daniel, we, we see that he was one of the young men that was taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, young Daniel is one of these new wise men on the scene, and he hears of the king's edict, and so he and his friends pray that God would give Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of it. And, and so they pray that, and God does that. God gives Daniel exactly what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel goes to the executioner before he kills his first magi and says this, Daniel 2.24, he says, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So then they, so Daniel goes before the king, and says this, verse 27 of Daniel 2. So Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while on your bed. So now Daniel is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and what it means. Starting in verse 29. As for you, O king, while you were on, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time and became like chaff for the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great 
mountain and fill the whole earth. So Daniel, after telling him his dream, then began to explain to Nebuchadnezzar what the dream meant. That actually, this statue represented a succession of kingdoms beginning with his own kingdom and then the kingdoms that would succeed him. So that he tells the king that this colossal metallic image statue represents four consecutive world powers that would rule over Israel and the Middle East, greater Middle East in the days to come. So he told the king that this would be a composite of history from from your time, king, until the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. So he began to reveal to the king what his king meant. He's going to tell the king who the four kingdoms are. And then the fourth kingdom has two sections. He's going to explain that as well. So he, goes, he begins to do that. The first world empire, he says, the statue's head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom of Babylon. Look at this. How do we know that? Because Daniel tells us. Daniel 2, verse 37 and 38, he says, You, O king, Babylon, the king of Babylon, you are the head of gold. So the first kingdom is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The second world empire represents, represented by the image's chest and arms of silver, is the Medo-Persian empire that conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and it remained in power for about 200 years. How do we know the next kingdom in that statue is basically the Media Persia kingdom? We know it because Daniel tells us. Daniel chapter 5, verse 28, Daniel says, Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. So now we know it's Babylon, it's Media Persia, and the third kingdom, third world empire, is represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze, we know is the empire of Greece in the days of Alexander the Great. How do we know that? Well, we know it from history, that's the next empire, but more importantly, we know that the third empire is Greece because the book of Daniel tells us that. Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, Daniel's given a, in chapter 8 another vision, a different vision but about these four kingdoms. And he points out in Daniel 8.21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Now, the fourth empire is different than the other three because Daniel doesn't tell us, he does not identify the fourth kingdom for us. He doesn't tell us who the fourth kingdom is. He does define certain aspects of this kingdom help us so we can determine who it is. But he doesn't tell us who the fourth kingdom is, the legs of iron. Daniel 2, verse 40, he does say, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces, those three previous kingdoms. So the fourth kingdom, he says, will crush and break into pieces those first three kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Now, most Bible commentators throughout church history have assumed that the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron, is Rome. 
since Rome is the next kingdom in history. But the only kingdom after Greece that can fulfill the biblical description of the fourth kingdom is not Rome. The fourth kingdom, the only kingdom that can fulfill that description we're going to see in just a moment is the historical Islamic caliphate. Now, the Islamic caliphate is simply the historical Islamic government or empire, which began in 632 AD with the Rashidun Caliphate, shortly right after the death of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, and then culminates with the Ottoman Empire that didn't come to an end until 1923. Now, why is that a big deal? It is important that we correctly identify the fourth kingdom because the fifth section of this metallic image is an extension of the fourth kingdom or a revived fourth kingdom. And it's that kingdom, that extension, that revived fourth kingdom that the Antichrist will lead in the last days and it's that kingdom that Christ will come back and defeat and set up his kingdom. So what does the book of Daniel tell us about this fourth kingdom? Let's read Daniel 2, verse 40. Again, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it, the fourth kingdom, will crush and break all these, those previous kingdoms, in pieces. All right, so the three kingdoms that we've broken into pieces are Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But these three kingdoms never coexisted. Right? So we've got to ask the questions, what does the text mean that the fourth empire would crush all the others? Well, the first meaning of the word crush really refers simply to geography. So we need to take a look at some maps, real simple maps here. I'm going to put that first map up. First, we need to see, you see this darkened area, dark border right here? That is the kingdom of Babylon. And that big circle there is the city of Babylon. There's Babylon. That's their kingdom, kingdom of Babylon. Okay, the next kingdom that comes and overtakes the kingdom of Babylon is the Media Persia. Let's see that one. Okay, now we see this Media Persian Empire is extended way much further east. Look at all that it takes up in today's map here. And again, there's Babylon. Next kingdom we know is Greece. And again, see where, how this kingdom, again, has overtaken the previous kingdoms and extends eastward as well. Now, before we look at the next slide, I want you to think about those commentators who say that it's Rome that's the next kingdom. And they would believe that the last days, a revived Roman Empire would be what Antichrist would lead. Well, I want to propose, propose to you that based on the definition and description in the book of Daniel, it cannot be Rome. Okay, so now let's put the Roman Empire up there next. See, the Roman Empire extends westward. The Roman Empire doesn't even cover two-thirds of what was covered in the previous empires. It only covers one-third of it. So to say that the Roman Empire crushes the previous empires... Just by ge geography, you can say that cannot be the case. 
But there is a kingdom that does fulfill that, and it is the historical Islamic caliphate. Let's put that next map up. Here is the historical Islamic caliphate. At its, at its peak, it extended all, it covered all the previous three empires with Babylon right there. So it does crush the previous empires. It's the only one that does. Rome doesn't work here. Again, it's important that we understand that what the fourth empire is so we understand what the revived one will look like that Antichrist will lead. Okay, now let's take this word crush and go a little further with it. Let's go beyond geography. Again, if we say that the idea of crushing goes beyond geography, again, Rome doesn't fit, but the historical Islamic caliphate does. If we, used, if we had the concept of crushing beyond geography to crushing the previous culture, crushing the previous religion, and crushing the previous language, Rome doesn't fit, but the Islamic, historical Islamic caliphate does. See, Rome was, Rome was known for its nation building in the ancient world. When Rome conquered a people, rather than destroying their culture and abolishing their religion and imposing a new language, it generally tolerated all that, but still ruled over it. A perfect example is Israel in the days of Jesus when he walked the earth. Israel was under Roman rule, but Rome did not abolish their religion. They let them have their religion. They didn't abolish their culture, crush their culture. They let them have their culture. They let them maintain their language. They just ruled over that region. And so that's how Rome did. Rome was not a crushing force in the sense that Daniel uses the word. But what about historical, the historical Islamic government, caliphate? Well, all you got to do is travel the places where it has gone, where that kingdom has, made, has gone and conquered. For example, if you go to Istanbul, one of the things that you must see in Istanbul is the Hagia Sophia, which is the largest Christian church in the world at its time. I've been to this building three times. It's amazing. Today, it is both a mosque and a museum. Now, immediately after Mehmet, Mehmet, the conqueror, took Constantinople in 1453, he turned the Hagia Sophia into, from a church to a place of Muslim worship. And what he did, what they did right away is they either covered over or they erased every Christian icon or symbol. If you go there, you'll see that. You'll go there, you'll see where they plastered over these mosaics of, of the Christian Bible stories. Beautiful mosaics that, for the museum's sake, they moved some of the plaster away. But they had plastered over it, and everywhere they, they were etched in marble crosses, they had etched enough of it away that it didn't look like a cross anywhere. And I've been all in that building, and everywhere there's a cross, and they're all over. They're not crosses anymore. Why? Because they, they, they etched out the cross. Because they crushed other religions, they crushed other cultures. It's a crushing kingdom, a crushing force. So wherever Islam spread, they conquered culture and gradually erased all the symbols and evidences of the culture and religion. Now let's take a careful look at Daniel 2, verse 34, 35. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Now this is going to be the Messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, a stone cut out without hands. 
And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then, listen to this, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time. And became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Christ's kingdom, when he comes again, is described as a rock cut out, but not with human hands. And this messianic kingdom specifically destroys the final kingdom of the Antichrist. He crushes that kingdom. But in doing that, it says that Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece are also destroyed at the same time. Again, this is another reason why it can't be a, the, fourth, the fourth part of the statue, the fourth kingdom cannot be Rome. Because if the Roman Empire were fully revived today to the point of its greatest extent and Jesus returned and destroyed it, then Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece would also not all be destroyed at the same time because it didn't cover all that. On the other hand, if the Islamic Caliphate were fully revived today, and Jesus returned and conquered that empire, then Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece would all be just completely destroyed as well. Now, after describing the iron legs, Daniel begins to describe the feet, which are a mixture, he says, of ironing baked clay. So the last empire that before Jesus returns is, tech, is technically, technically not, not, not the legs of iron, but the feet of mixed iron and clay. That's where Jesus comes and, and, and hits. So there's this continuity between the legs and the feet to this element of iron. And so Dan is clear there's, four, there's only four kingdoms, but that last kingdom has an extension. That's the revived fourth kingdom. So the legs of iron are the historical Islamic caliphate. The feet of mixed iron and clay are a revived version of that kingdom coming together in the last days. And you wonder, what could possibly pull all those countries together in some type of coalition? Well, Islam is what pulls them all together. And why would they all work together? Because they have a mutual enemy, Israel. But we, Daniel tells us something else about this fourth kingdom, revived fourth kingdom. He says, it is a divided kingdom. Let's read it. Daniel 2, verse 41. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron. After Muhammad died, a division broke out between the Shia, who felt that the success the successorship belonged to Muhammad's relatives and the Sunnis who felt that the successorship belonged to Muhammad's companions. And this division defined Islam from its earliest days to today. The Shia and the Sunnis are still, there's still a divided Islam between the Shia and the Sunnis. And they can work together only when they have a mutual enemy. And today their enemy, of course, common enemy is Israel. And so you'll see countries that are pri primarily Sunni, like Turkey, being willing to work together with a country like 
Iran, which is primarily Shia, because they have a mutual enemy, Israel. So the final kingdom that Christ will come and destroy when he comes again will be a revived Islamic caliphate. Daniel's given us the description. We can actually look at the end of the book of Daniel and understand what's happening here. We're going to see that the same vision is also given in other places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel as well gets a similar vision. And so I want you to just look at this map again. So look at this map. If you put that back up there, the, uh, yeah, there you go. And see again, what would bring this, this, all these countries together? What would bring them together? Well, they're all predominantly Islamic today. And again, keep in mind that Islam wasn't even a religion until 700 AD. Keep this in mind. Because when you read out of Ezekiel, we'll look at, he, he names the countries and think, what would bring these countries together against Israel? It's Islam. And so we see that when you start thinking about the ten, you can start picking the ten nations out, and Ezekiel starts to name the nations that will form the kingdom the Antichrist will lead. So let's look at this passage. Now, Daniel 2.44, because I want you to know that's not how the story ends. It doesn't end with a victorious Islamic caliphate, but with Christ coming. Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So Jesus will come again. He will set up his kingdom, and it will never end. It will never end. What is amazing is that we are watching on nightly news a 25 hundred-year-old prophecy begin to develop and come together before our very eyes. Jesus is coming soon. Now you say it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, I can't imagine it being 30 years. Let me tell you the four factors real quick before that, that, I, that are on my mind when I think about there's four things that all have to come together and cross the finish line at the same time. And these four factors are the Israel factor, number one, the Islamic factor, number two, the birth pains factor, number three, and the Great Commission factor, number four. The Israel factor, I'll just remind you, I've spoken about this in here. There's six key things that have to happen for the Israel factor. Number one is a nation, Israel is a nation living back in the promised land. And don't forget that for 1,900 years, Israel didn't live in the promised land. 70 A.D., they were dispersed throughout the world, and not till 1948 were they back in the land as a nation. Not till 1967 did they control Jerusalem. That had to happen, and now the stage is set. End-time prophecy could not happen without those things happening. Israel, back in the promised land. Israel living and controlling Jerusalem. Israel living with a strong military, speaking Hebrew. You think, that's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. They have been for 1,900 years in other cultures and languages, and they maintain Hebrew, Speak, keeping the Sabbath. There's one thing that we're still waiting for, and that is the, a functioning, a rebuilt functioning temple. That needs to happen. Because Antichrist is going to come to the Jewish temple. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation by, by, by basically taking the seat in the temple as God to be worshipped and honored as God. 
So in order for that to happen, there has to be a temple. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the Antichrist. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So there will be a rebuilt temple. There hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD. But there is a strong movement right now, right now in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. There is a group called the Temple Mount Faithful. There are tens of thousands in this group, the Temple Mount Faithful, that are committed that in their lifetime they will rebuild the temple. They already have the priests trained to do temple services. They have all the utensils made. And I've talked to some of the Temple Mount Faithful when I've been over there, and I talked to one of them that said that they were actually under the tunnels, the tunnels under Temple Mount. They broke through a wall that's not been broken through before. He said, and he told me, he just told me, he said, I saw the Ark of the Covenant, and right after that, we were all ushered out of there because the, the Muslims said that we were going to blow it all up, and they ushered it out, and they sealed it off, and we couldn't go back in. So there's just a lot of movement right here going on. They've already taken the cornerstone of, the temp, of a new temple. They've marched around Jerusalem with it, holding it, holding it up. And, uh, and so it's, uh, and by the way, today, now it's nighttime there now, but today the National Security Minister of Israel was on Temple Mount, standing there with a group proclaiming that this belongs to us. No, there's not supposed to be any non-Muslim prayers on, on that Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is, the third most holy site for Muslims. And yet more and more Jews are coming there in defiance and praying on that Temple Mount. So we're seeing there is, there is, there's something happening there, and that is going to happen, and we're going to watch it. We're going to see one night in the news, you're going to watch it, and it's going to be begun, and it's going to be uh, very controversial when it happens. So there needs to be Israel in the land. All these things need to be happening. And then there needs to be, they need to be surrounded by enemies that want to destroy them. And, of course, that leads us to the Islamic factor. So, again, one of the things I watch for is countries like Iran, that's Shia, Iraq, Iraq, which is two-thirds Shia, Turkey, which is Sunni. And you start to see certain countries being willing to come into an alliance against Israel. The third factor is the birth pains factor, birth pains like oh, wars and rumors of war. What's a rumor of war? A rumor of war is something like China is going to attack Taiwan. It hadn't happened, but it's talked about every, almost every day. And it's a rumor of war. And wars like Russia and Ukraine, and there's going to be more and more rumors of war and wars, along with ethnic violence increasing. Jesus said that he talked about a time when Birth pains are where they have ethnos rise up against ethnos and kingdom against kingdom. Ethnos, we translate nations, but the, that's where we, we, get, we get our word ethnic from ethnos. There's, we're seeing more and more people groups that are being displaced and end up in refugee camps, and more and more of that continue to happen along with earthquakes and hurricanes and pandemics and famines. So there's the birth pain factor. The fourth factor is the Great Commission factor. Right now, there is a goal with Bible translation and all the groups together that by the year 2033, 10 years from now, there will be a Bible translation at least started with every people group on the earth that still needs one by the year 2033, 10 years. And so that, could, that, could that be accelerated by God? Absolutely. Could it take longer? Sure. So we, we don't have a date. I'm just saying 
All of this is converging. I want you to see it's all converging in our lifetime. Here's what Jesus said about the Great Commission. Matthew 24, 14. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, all the people groups, ethnos, and then the end shall come. There's only one verse in the Bible that tells exactly when the end will come, and that's this verse. And the Great Commission has been, it's been fulfilled. Now, we can't measure that, so we, we don't know. But we, also, but we do know we're getting close. We're getting close. So Jesus is coming soon. The day that Daniel and Ezekiel spoke about 2,500 years ago, and Zechariah spoke about it and others, is developing before our eyes. So let me just ask you this. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? I mean, this is really going to happen. And we're alive. We're watching all these things come together. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? I mean, this, is, this, is, this time of playing games is over, way over. I mean, we're playing for keeps here. Do you know him? And if you say, yeah, I know him, but if you're walking in apathy and you're backslidden, this is a great day to repent from that. I say, what in the world am I messing around with all that stuff for? Jesus is coming back. I mean, he's really coming back. Amen. Let me close with what Jesus has to say in Luke 21 about these kind of days we're living in. Jesus says this, Luke 21, 34 through 36. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times praying. In order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. To stand before the Son of Man. I tell you, if you let your prayer life get away from you and and this is a good time to regroup your prayer life. You be praying. Be praying that you are ready to handle the days to come. Pray for yourself. Pray for loved ones. Pray for your church. And pray for the church around the world. Be ready for the days that are coming. Because they're coming. They're coming soon. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you that you, Lord, allowed us to be alive during these strategic times. Thank you that you awakened our hearts with the truth of Jesus and the kingdom to come. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us even as we're here today. Strengthen us that we, Lord, would finish well, finish strong. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your church around the world. Much of the church is asleep, Lord. We pray you'd wake up the church. Lord, you told us there would be a great falling away in these days. We pray, Lord. I pray, Lord, for all those here and all those that are part of Grace Community Church, Lord, they wouldn't be part of the great falling away. Lord, you strengthen them. Make them, make this, the, the days to come are, are greatest, the greatest hour for Grace Community Church to function, for your church to function. So we do pray you pour out your spirit powerfully in us today and use us this week to really shine your light 
and speak with love and boldness the truth of what is coming. In Jesus' name.